talk about Mark. Well, first I want to pray. Uh, some of you know, uh, many of you know Dan and Heather Wood, and uh, they had their son Ethan this week. And uh, it wasn't w- an easy entry into the world. It tells us a little bit about his personality. He's going to be a challenge to raise, uh, but God was gracious and he's safe. Mark, Mark saw them on Thursday. I was down Friday and spent time with them in the hospital in Swedish. And uh, mother and baby are uh, fine and healthy by God's grace. And I want to stop and pray and thank the Lord for that. So let's stop and pray for that and a couple other things. Father, I do lift up Dan and Heather and Ethan to you and their family. Uh, God, we are very grateful. We are so grateful, Lord, that you would see fit to oversee that birth, Lord, and all the challenges and the scary part of that that was there. Um, And it was so fun to see Heather and the tears in her eyes and she just held her son and talked about how much she loved him. I pray that you would continue to bless her and Ethan as they heal. And uh, Father, thank you for Bill Spear and the uh, bringing healing to him through these two surgeries on his knees. I know he's in a lot of pain and recovering, and I pray that you would continue to strengthen him during this time. And Father, we have many, many people in our congregation that are going through a variety of things that I don't know much about. Some I do and some I don't, but you do. Thanks for being a God that we can approach honestly and say, help us and be with us. Lord, I uh, lift up our singles. Um, especially mindful of them. I know that for many of them, life is a challenge, and I pray that you would continue to be very near and real to them and help us to be real to them, Lord, during this stage of their life. And Father, I pray for our country during this election year. Lord, again, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that most of us here, I'm confident, will vote our conscience. But Lord, we look to you as our God, to guide our country and to pick the ruler that you want, the president that you want. But I pray, Lord, that during this process, that somehow you would cause us as a nation, uh, turn our gaze to you in ways maybe that we haven't done it before. You reveal yourself to us. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would somehow help heal some of the fracture and the division that seems so strong and so pronounced. Help us, Lord, as a country um, to honor you. And we lift all these things up in your son's name. Amen. Okay, when you became a Christian, all of you had a variety of reasons for turning to the Lord. That's a good thing. I don't know what they were. As I listen to your stories and have coffee with you, I hear a variety of responses when I hear your story. But the question I have, now that you've settled into your faith, for those of you that are Christians, now that you've settled into your faith, how do you perceive God on a regular basis? Do you see God as a healer, somebody to go to when you're sick or somebody you know is sick? Is that the primary way you relate to the Lord? Maybe you uh, see him as someone that uh, he blesses your plans. You have an idea, you want to accomplish something, say, Lord, please take care of this. And the rest of the time, he's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Or maybe he's um, something like a heavenly sugar daddy. Take care of me, you know, uh, give me riches. How do you see God? How do you see him? What is your relationship primary like, primarily like? Or let's turn the question around. What is his primary goal in your life? So we could ask it from what is your primary goal in relating to God. What is his primary goal in your life? Ever thought about that? In a little while, we're going to talk about why does he bless nations? Why does he bless our country? For what reason? What's he doing in your life? How you answer that question will honestly determine how you live out your faith and how you understand this wonderful text. Let me just give you right up front my thoughts. He's not interested in your comfort. I think sometimes he provides comfort. 
But that's not his primary goal. I don't think his primary goal is to heal you or to bless you. I do think that happens. And I'm so glad that he's like that. And uh, that's all good. But down underneath all that, his primary goal is to transform you into the image of his son. You know what that means? That means to restore human capacity, to give you back the things that he created you to be. For example, he wants you to be more loving. He wants you to be more patient. We joke about that, right? Don't teach me patience. Yes, it's costly to learn patience. He wants you to be more affectionate, more giving, more generous, more compassionate, more forgiving. That's his primary goal. When we talk about transformation, yes, that's an academic type of word, uh, but you know what it means? You're going to change. That's what it means. And the moment we talk about the fact that you're going to change, that says something. Number one, there's something wrong with you, or you wouldn't need to change. If you didn't need to change, you'd be Jesus, and you're not. So that means there are pieces and parts of you, whole sections of you, experiences of you, memories of you, emotions in you that need to be transformed and changed. That's what it means. You know, God can't deal with sin until he, until he exposes it. He's got to bring your sin to the surface. So perhaps the most gracious thing you can do is expose your sin and let you get caught. And some of you have been caught. I know, I've had coffee with you. That's a good thing. Praise God. Maybe you need a little humility, and the best thing that can happen is your business fails. God knows what's in your best interest. And you know what? Often, it is not pleasant. Because God's interest is not primarily your comfort at this stage. His interest is in transforming you into the image of His Son. That's what His goal is in your life. That means you have to go through whole periods that are painful. There is no shortcut. Sin doesn't get dealt with when you sleep. It just doesn't. Humility doesn't develop because you, have, you read a Bible verse and memorize it. No, all those things happen because God, a sovereign God, a loving God, decides it's your turn to go through things, to go through something to expose you and that part that needs to be transformed. That's what his goal is. Today we're going to look, we're in a series called The Servant King, study in Mark, and we're looking, we're asking the question, how could Jesus be the king and the servant or be a slave? Back in the first century, they didn't have the concept of a servant. You're either a slave or a free man. So how could Jesus be a king and a slave at the same time? They're mutually exclusive. Kings aren't slaves and slaves aren't kings. But somehow Jesus did both. And this is what's going to help us understand our life as Christians. Today we're going to look at a whole constellation of uh, passages, stories, examples, parables, where Jesus begins to challenge the status quo. He begins to challenge what we think about him. That's what he did with the first century Jews, and guess what? He's going to do it with us. By the way, he did it with the Gentiles too. And so today is going to be a little bit of a challenge for you because we're going to take a look at these. The first Sunday, we, looked at, we opened Mark's gospel with the idea of wake up. The story is about Jesus as the Son of God, the kingdom of here. Repent. Stop what you're doing. Wake up. Don't be asleep. Don't ignore. Don't become complacent. Keep your eyes open and alert. You've heard me say many times, do not be deceived by what you see in this county. Do not be deceived. 
Every human in this, in this county is hurt, experiencing some level of pain. Everyone. I know. I sit with you. You know what I see when I look out here? I see hurt. I see brokenness. I see struggles. I see challenges. Because I know many of you, and I know your stories. That's what I see when I look in your eyes. I recognize it. Do not be deceived. What is pretty on the outside is just pure deception. And Jesus is going to come in and challenge the status quo. And we're going to see that. Second Sunday, we saw that Jesus set the stage by immediately challenging authority. He demonstrated authority over the spiritual world, the physical world, the Jewish ritual world. He walked right in and began challenging the authority structures that are in place. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, by the way, is to challenge what's happening. Don't become complacent. Sunday number three, last Sunday, we saw Jesus begin to identify what this people of God looks like that he came to redeem. And it's different than what we think. By the way, Mark, thank you for uh, preaching uh, last week. Thank you for praying. I was supposed to be here. I went to my mother's, grandmother's 100th birthday. Had a great time. And on the way back, you guys decided to have a storm. I wasn't here, so I don't take any credit for it. And I couldn't get back. So at this time, I did ask them, American Airlines, well, can you at least get me to Dallas? They did, so I got to have time with my grandson. It was wonderful. And my my son and all of the children, my grandson and granddaughters, I should say, the whole whole family. In fact, while you guys were worshiping last week, here's what happened to me. I'm sitting at the table, and my grandson, he ordered everything, you know, every French toast, everything you can think of, this huge breakfast, and he dumps literally half the barrel of, I mean, half the jar of syrup on it. Syrup's almost running off the plate. He eats half of it, and he wants his eggs. So he lifts up the plate. Before you can say a word, anybody can stop. He lifts up the plate, pulls it back here, pulls the eggs, and dumps it right on all of us. So, yes. That's what having a grandson is like. Fantastic. So that's what I was doing last week. So as Mark begins to reveal this servant king, this king who is a slave to, uh, to us on behalf of his father, we begin to see him in a variety of dimensions that surprise us. Okay, we've seen the healings. We've seen the casting out demons. We've already seen all that. Behind all these parables and these stories, though, Mark is beginning to build a, a deeper foundation that we need to pay attention to. It's a, it's a, a darker theme. It's about evil. It's about evil. You see, we live in a very evil and broken world, Paul says. A very evil world. Do not be deceived. And Mark begins to expose that. Mark shows us that Jesus is going to confront evil at its very core. This evil is threatening his creation, which is beautiful. The sad thing is, this is the only world we know. And so it's normal to us. We live with it every day. We live with lack of integrity. We live with immorality. We live with adultery. I mean, one of the questions the younger generation asks is, what's wrong with divorce? I mean, 50% of the church is divorced. must be okay. No, it's not okay. It is not. You want to shoot yourself in the foot and destroy your integrity and your witness as a Christian? Go ahead and get divorced. Go ahead and sleep with somebody. No, these things are not okay, but we no longer even know why. The best we can come to as a church is, well, the Bible says so. But we don't really understand the real implication behind. What's wrong with friends with benefits, sleeping with each other? What's wrong with, you name it, fill in the blank. And we as a church, we've become accustomed to it. Wake up. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. For good reason. Down underneath all of what we see is this evil lurking. And we part, we, we are, we're part of that story. And it becomes normal to us. 
And Jesus is going to come and defeat evil in ways that are surprising. The healings, for instance, the miracle stories, they show us that Jesus is not content to let evil spirits lurk and control. And so he invades our world in a miraculous, supernatural way to show us what he's going to do is unexpected. That's what Mark is telling us. So today we're going to look at this constellation of stories about how Jesus is going to challenge the status quo, what people thought about him, and in the process, I'm hopefully going to challenge you with what you think about him. So Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to start out. We're going to take a couple of stories, look in more detail, and kind of skim through the rest. Mark chapter 6, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. So prior to this, he was in another part of the country. Now he's in his hometown, Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? Now I want you to read these with a little bit of sarcasm and mocking in mind, because when you put all the Gospels together, that's what's happening here. What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they were offended by him. He's in his own hometown. So Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Okay, that's Mark's opening statement in this whole section. Wow. He begins with an experience that will always intrigue us. Always. We're trying to make sense of this. In his own hometown, he's teased, he's mocked, he's challenged. Why? Why? With the people that he grew up with. Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, a couple of things. One is, um, hometown boy, when you start speaking the truth, sometimes people don't respect you where you grew up. We all have that, don't we? Where we don't have as much respect with our families as we do with our friends. It's very natural. By the way, let that be a lesson to your parents. Always find ways to respect your kids, no matter how old they are. Always. Always be proud of them. Always listen to them. Always. But there's something else going on here that's underneath it. The kingdom that he was talking about is not the king kind of kingdom they wanted or were looking for. What they wanted was a king to come in and kick the Romans out. When are you going to make us the best nation again on the earth like it was under David? When are you going to make us the nation? And that's not what he's talking about at all. You see, what he began to teach was where Jesus is, that is where the kingdom is. So when Jesus is there with them, the kingdom is present with them right now. And they didn't like that because they didn't like that version of the kingdom. They didn't like what God really wanted to do. It's really what happened. So the challenge that the people give to him is not a surprise to us because that makes sense to us in our world. What is a surprise is how Jesus begins to respond. It's kind of interesting in this passage, I think odd, that Mark again reveals the mysterious connection between healing and faith. And we have this full pendulum in the church at large on this, and I would just encourage you to avoid the extremes. At one extreme, you have to have faith, and if you have enough faith, you're going to be healed. Okay? That's easily defeated. At the other end, God doesn't do miracles anymore. That's easily defeated. Somewhere in the middle is this rich ground 
where God does heal sometimes. I don't know when. I don't know why. I really don't. But I do know he can and does. And so I pray with faith and conviction and ask him seriously that he would heal. And sometimes he chooses to and sometimes he chooses not to. Why? Well, now we're back to the first question. What is God doing in your life? I can't answer that question because I'm not God. So let me just avoid, help you to avoid those extremes. But what it does for us is it's a reminder to, that we need to believe and live out our faith. And yes, we will be hindered. If Jesus himself was hindered, we don't stand a chance. Yes, we're going to be hindered in our ministries. We're going to be hindered in our spiritual walk. We're going to be hindered in our businesses. We're going to be hindered in our parenting, in our marriages. And everywhere we turn, we're going to find what Jesus experienced. Don't be deceived. This is part of that broken world that he came to fix. This is part of it. You will be hindered. And so what do you do when you are hindered? That's the real question. The question isn't whether you're going to suffer or struggle. I accept that as a fact. The question is, how are you going to live out your faith when it happens? It's easy when everything looks good. It's easy when life is going well. But when life isn't going well, what are you going to do? And it also teaches us something about patience. He highlights, isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James? So here's James right here, not even believing his older brother. He's not even buying it. And yet within 30 years, he becomes the leader of the church, worldwide known, known worldwide for his faith. Patience, patience. The last chapter is not written yet. I've said to several of you parents, haven't I, with your children, just be patient. The last chapter is not written with any of us. God is good. He knows how to connect with your kids far better than you do. Give them space. Let them fail. Well, then he moves right on to sending out the 12. And he does a very odd thing when he sends out the 12. He tells them, take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money for your belts. Wear only sandals. Don't even bring an extra shirt. So they're not even allowed to take a bag or money. And then he gave them authority over demons. Wow, pretty interesting. I think the message is clear what kind of floats to the surface here. They are to be signs to the people. They are to be signs to us on how we are to live our life. You see, here's how we should live our life. The kingdom is here. It is here. We participate in it. Something is about to happen. Get ready for it. There's no time to lose. Don't waste your time by falling asleep. Don't waste your time on greed. Don't waste your time on immorality, pornography. Don't. Stay awake. Every author talks about that and uses different kind of language to get you, to, to shake you and say, wake up. You're not happy in your marriage? Do something about it. Do something about it. Don't let it go on. And then you have the surprise. And if the people don't listen, move on. Move on. What does he say? Any place that doesn't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and move on. Leave them behind. It's their issue, not yours. That's strong words from the Lord, isn't it? Leave them behind. Then he moves on to John the Baptist. Now, this is a surprising story because he finishes sending out the 12. And in verse 30, he says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So they go out and then they come back and they tell him. And in between, he has this little story about John the Baptist. 
Okay, basically, uh, if, you, if you read the beginning, um, he his name had become known and Herod heard about it. Some thought that he was John the Baptist. Some thought that he was Elijah. Some thought he was a prophet. Herod thought it was John the Baptist. I think mean, that's kind of funny. Ra- who had been raised from the dead because he had had him executed. Why? What's this story doing right in the middle of it? What's significant about Herod in the story of John the Baptist uh, being beheaded? A lot of detail here. You see, this story would have been well known to the people that are reading it. No secrets in a small town. Herod is a local leader, but he is a leader in this part of the town, and he's in charge. And what he had done was scandalous. And this sets the story for the stage for the next story. Because he had his stepdaughter come into all of his drunk friends and dance in an especially provocative way. That was scandalous. He didn't do that. And that's what he did. And that's kind of what's highlighted. And that's what is going to get remembered by the people. These are our leaders. They're drunk. Where are they? How come they're not leading? They're partying. What are they doing here? So this sets the stage for the next story where Jesus feeds the 5,000, the one that Mark alluded to. Okay, so the disciples reappear after the trips. So Jesus takes them away to a quiet place. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You deserve it. You guys have been out teaching. Let's go, let's go get some quiet downtime. Leave the crowds behind. I love it. So they went away by themselves to, in a boat to a solitary place. But when they got there, everybody recognized it and it came running ahead of time. So there were crowds and crowds and crowds, multitudes of people. So much for the quiet place. <laughs> Welcome to ministry. Somebody asked me, what, what day is my day off? And I said, when people aren't dying, having babies, having cancer, or getting sick, needing prayer, that's my day off. I managed to squeeze time. That's what happens in ministry, and I love it. The elders asked me, when do you, uh, you know, when do you get, how do you know that uh, you're doing too much? And I said, Nancy, <laughs> I have a great wife. She sends me a calendar invite that says romantic getaway. <laughs> Isn't that the most wonderful thing? No discussion. I just look up and I like, I have a calendar invite for romantic getaway. Accept. Click. <laughs> Clear the schedule. <laughs> I just think that's great. This is ministry. You have it. And what does it say in verse 34? When Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Okay? Yeah, this is a, this is a story where he fed 5,000. That's what we remember. But the real heart of the story is, is, is what we learn about Jesus. He had compassion on them and began to teach them. You see, these people were desperate. They were desperate for leadership. This, these are the broken people. These are the people that are hungry, destitute. They conclude with uh, they're, all, they're all running around. Um, they're, they're, they're hungry. They're needy. The disciples even say, what are we doing with all these people here? It's already very late. Send them away so they can go get some food. So Jesus says, I love this. You give them something to eat. You do it. And they're like, what are you talking about? To feed these people would take more than a half a year's wages. We don't have that kind of money. You just told us to, to go and leave everything behind, all of our money. We don't have that kind of money. So Jesus says, you know the story, and then go collect all the fish and the bread. We'll see what we have. And he makes it work for all of them. All right. In the middle of this, we have a little teaser Verse 41, think about our communion here. We get captured just a glimpse of what's coming. 
Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And he passed it out and there was enough for everyone. That's communion language. That's Eucharistic language. That's Passover language. That's described in, right in the middle of this story here. So this story is surprising at so many levels. Jesus is astonishing everyone with his care. We are seeing in this story a sign of the new creation. All these people, he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. There's no leader. Where is their leader? We just read it in the previous story. Where is he? Drinking, carousing. He's enjoying the benefits of a rich life in a sinful way. That's where he is. He's not out leading. He's not with the people. He's not taking care of the poor. He's having his friends over and having his stepdaughter dance in a particularly vile sexual and evocative way. That's where he is. That's where he is. Our country could use a little bit of this. What does it mean to lead our people? So these people are desperate and they're broken and we see Jesus caring for them. This is the kingdom. The people have been oppressed and this young Messiah is leading and caring for them. Now, what does that got to do with us? We are his emissaries today. We are the ones who should be doing the very same thing. We should be challenging the status quo. We should not be ignoring the poor, the oppressed, the mentally ill, the downtrodden. No, we should be the ones that are leading the charge to run and help them. We should be doing what Jesus did because he, he broke the rules. He went in a different direction. Then you have the next passage, Jesus walking on the water. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind had risen. So shortly before dawn, he walks out on the lake to pass them by, and they see him, and they, scry, they cry out. They're terrified because they thought they were, it was a ghost. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Okay, now here's the part that relates to you. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. They're asleep. They didn't get the message on the story before feeding the 5,000. They missed it. And so they're completely amazed. Why? Okay, think about all that's going on in this story. The disciples leave. Jesus goes to pray. The wind rises. Jesus walks on the water, terrifies them. The disciples hadn't understood anything about what the feeding of the 5,000 was about. They think it's only about food. At the end of the story, the people are running all back and forth throughout the whole region, carrying the sick on mats to wherever he was, and he kept healing them. It even concludes with, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak so that all who touched it were healed. These are desperate people. These are desperate people. You know what Mark's asking the question? Who is this Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Who is he? Are you like the disciples, not understanding, asleep, not paying attention to what God's doing in your world? You get sick, so you get discouraged. And you never stop. Them. It's amazing to me that we drive. We believe, we say we believe in a sovereign God. We drive down the road, have a flat tire, pull over. Guy pulls up behind us and says, here, let me fix your tire. We give him some money, get back in the road and everything's safe and fine. And we never stop and say, we believe in a sovereign God. What just happened right then? Where was God? So you get sick, maybe with terminal illness. 
then you begin to focus on the discouragement and the depression. As a friend of mine says, that is being human. It's just not redeemed human. No, are you like the disciples? Are you asleep? My business is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. Where's God in all this? That is human. It's just not redeemed human. And that's what Mark is forcing us to, to, to take into account. This is not a statement about his deity. Yes, he does miracles. This is a statement about his messiahship. He wants to turn the world upside down and create different effects and dynamics within you and your church, our church and your lives. That's what he wants. Then he goes into the sudden passage on that which defiles. All of a sudden, the debate stops. I mean, the healings and the miracles stop. And there's the, the debate over whether or not they have dirty hands. You see how this describes us? You see it? How we focus on the mundane? Oh, no, it's important to us. But Paul calls it what it is. Everything that we go through are momentary light afflictions. And this is a man that was beaten several times and left for dead. And if I understand it correctly, had actually died and his spirit revived him. Stoned many times. Left for dead. He calls these momentary light afflictions. Are you asleep like the disciples? Is that you? God throws something your way to get you to transform and the wheels fall off? Is that you? Or do you stand up and show your faith? You know, it's really easy to be a Christian when things go well. That's easy. That's not the real issue, though. The real question is when, the, when, when God steps into your life in a way that is very uncomfortable for you, where are you? Where's your faith? Is it real? Do you stand firm? That's when your faith is revealed, how strong it is. Okay, we've said before, Mark and I have, that uh, Mark is writing... Uh, the memoirs of Peter, so to speak, that what he's, he's hearing from Peter and being taught by Peter. I'm going to read to you something that Peter says in First Peter that relates to us. This is First Peter chapter 2. You've heard these words. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Remember, they rejected him, but he was God's choice. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. By the way, it's one of the things you're going to see in this document that leads us to the conclusion that it's okay to appoint women elders if you want to, because we're all appointed as priests. In the Old Testament, only men could be priests. It got fixed. It got equalized in the New Testament. We are all priests. So what's the importance of that? Verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that God may heal you. Oh, no, that's not in there. So that God may bless your business. No, that's not in there. So that God may uh, make sure that everybody's protected. No, that's not in there. No, no, no. All these things happen so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So that you can tell people about what God has done because you have met him. I asked the question on Wednesday night in class, why does God bless nations? Only one reason. Only one. So that the other nations will come and learn about his name. Why has God blessed our nation? So that those less fortunate all around the world that are being abused and hurt will come here and find out about the Lord. And we want to build a wall? I'm giving you just a glimpse into a little bit of my politics. We want to build a wall? 
I got asked on Wednesday night, how many of these people would you like to take in? I said, all of them. All of them. God blessed our nation so that we can help others and be an attraction to him. Mark calls it a tractor beam. He has blessed me so that I can use my wealth for those less fortunate. How many do I want in our country? All of them. So we can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And here it is. Once you were not a people. Remember that before you, before you decide to not let people in our country. Because this is describing you. Once you, in God's eyes, were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received any mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's why he blessed us as a nation. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a miracle worker. He did do miracles. He didn't come to, he didn't come to, to bless you. He does bless. And I'm grateful for all that. He came for something far more significant. This is a terribly broken world, and he wants it fixed. And guess who's assigned that responsibility? Us. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for uh, teaching us, Lord, because honestly, we can't understand it because this broken world is normal to us. We know what it's like to be politically correct. We know what it's like to, to uh, achieve success, to climb ladders, to, material, to accumulate wealth. We understand all that. What we don't understand is what it means to challenge the status quo and to be your people in a broken world, to represent you, to overcome evil. Thank you for teaching us that. And thank you for being patient with us, Lord. Thank you for looking over our, our stupidities and our constant dis- failures. And uh, thanks for being patient with us as a good father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.